Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And it's Saturday. Time to go into the old vault. This is for uh, an episode that published on April 23rd, 2019. This was part one of our series on the Sacred Mountain. Oh, yeah. This is a really fun pair of episodes that we did because we get into, uh, of course, various global myths and uh, folk traditions concerning sacred high peaks, places where heaven touches the earth, where the gods dwell and strange uh, entities may uh, may linger as well, uh, places where you might go to uh, on a quest to obtain some sort of rare substance to put in your potion, that sort of thing. But then also we get into like how does this match up with uh, – you know, to, to what extent might we explain these uh, phenomena by looking at the way um, our bodies uh, deal with uh, very high altitudes? Uh, so it's a pretty fun exploration. This is part one. Let's dive in. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we are going to be discussing the Sacred Mountain. Of course, there is not just one sacred mountain. There are many sacred mountains. In fact, uh, you know, you're probably close to one right now because they're all over the world. Uh, we, we discussed this a little bit in our recent episode about pressure where mm-hmm. we were talking about um, how, how the atmosphere gets thinner, of course, as you go higher up. And one of the things we started talking about was whether, you know, whether that might have anything to do with the prevalence of sacred or holy mountains in religious and cultural beliefs all around the world. Because once you start looking for them, they're everywhere in you know, every continent, or I guess maybe not so much Antarctica, but every other continent, mm-hmm. you know, they're, they're mountaintop monasteries. There are mountains that are believed to be homes of the gods. There are mountains that are places of worship, mountains that are places of sacrifice, mountains that are believed to be forbidden or, you know, otherwise magically, uh, you know, barred. Yeah. And they they really are in, in just about every culture. So what we wanted to do in this pair of episodes uh, for Stuff to Blow Your Mind is to really get into the idea of the sacred mountain. So this first episode is really going to be more about First of all, why do we have these different feelings about mountains? Why do mountains invoke these different ideas and feelings in the human mind? And then we're going to run through some notable examples of sacred mountains. I have to really drive home that this will not be an exhaustive mention of every sacred mountain tradition. I'm sure we're going to leave off some very good ones, uh, some very notable cultural examples. We, we just we can't cover them all, uh, but we'll try and cover uh, enough of them to give you a nice grounding. And then, of course, if you have uh, favorite sacred mountains that you visited or just read about, uh, you can write in to us and perhaps we'll share those in a future uh, listener mail episode. And then that second episode that we're going to do about sacred mountains is going to get more into the psychology and the neuroscience and how and to what extent high altitude uh, uh, conditions could contribute to this interpretation of the sacred and the holy uh, on mountains and on the tops of mountains. That's right. And though we are going to look all over the world in various places today, I, I think one place I wanted to start with is the mountain you might be less familiar with in Greek religion. Oh, yeah, because you're probably instantly thinking, well, Mount Olympus, that's where the gods are. Of course, home of the gods, yeah. yeah. That's where they're plotting all of their uh, nefarious ends. Uh, But what about 
Mount Lycaon, mm. home of the holy werewolf or the not so the, the unholy werewolf, uh, the sanctuary of Zeus, the birthplace of Zeus, and the altar of blood sacrifice. Yeah, it invokes a number of the different ideas we're going to be discussing here. So we wanted to read just a little bit from Pausanias. Uh, He's a historian. He wrote Description of Greece. Uh, uh, and this is uh, from the 2nd century CE, and this is like section 8. This is one, another one of those uh, old texts you can find in full translated online. Uh, but we're just going to read a couple of paragraphs from it. Okay. On the highest point of the mountain is a mound of earth forming an altar of Zeus Lycaeus, and from it most of the Peloponnesus can be seen. Before the altar on the east stand two pillars, on which there were of old gilded eagles. On this altar they sacrifice in secret to Lycaean Zeus. I was reluctant to pry into the details of the sacrifice. Let them be as they are and were from the beginning." On the east side of the mountain, there is a sanctuary of Apollo, surnamed Parhasian. They also give him the name Pythian. They hold every year a festival in honor of the god and sacrifice in the marketplace a boar to Apollo helper. And after the sacrifice here, they at once carry the victim to the sanctuary of Parhasian Apollo in procession to the music of the flute. Cutting out the thigh bones, they burn them and also consume the meat of the victim on the spot. So here we get a description of like sacrifices of a boar, though there have been rumors for a long time that human sacrifice was something that happened, you know, that you would kill humans and offer them up to Lycaean Zeus on uh, Mount Lycaeus. Uh, so uh, we should at least situate this. Uh, they mentioned that you could see the whole Peloponnese, but Mount Lycaeus now is a, it is a mountain in the region of Arcadia, which is long believed to be sort of the symbol or paragon of beautiful, unspoiled wilderness, and that's down in the Peloponnese. Mm-hmm. And uh, Zeus, uh, Lycaeus, is essentially Wolf Zeus. It's, yeah, it's it, like his his Wolf Power Ranger form. Yeah, so all the, everything you expect from uh, from Zeus, King of the Gods, except uh, also with with lupine properties. And there are a lot of stories about uh, sort of the history of this mountain and the name. Like Mount Lycaon, in some tellings, is said to be the birthplace or the home of Zeus, but also it's named for uh, King Lycaon of Arcadia, who was, of course, uh, in some myths foolish enough to mess with the gods of the Greek pantheon, to mess with Zeus. Yeah, always a mistake. Yeah, so according to Ovid's telling in the Metamorphosis, the king tried to trick Zeus into eating human flesh, and Zeus retaliated by turning him into a wolf, or turning him into a werewolf. And uh, I want to read this part of the poem as told in Ovid's Metamorphosis, as translated by Garth and Dryden. Okay, let's divide it, Robert. You, You do this first section here. This dire experiment he chose to prove if I were mortal or undoubted Jove. But first he had resolved to taste my power, not long before, but in a luckless hour. Some legates sent from the Molassian state were on a peaceful errand come to treat. Of these he murders one, he boils the flesh, and lays the mangled morsels in a dish. Some part he roasts, then serves it up, so dressed, and bids me welcome to this humane feast. Okay, so the king captures some dudes, burns them, and then offers them up to Zeus, like, here, try it. (laughs) Uh, Presuming, I think, to, to trick Zeus into eating this human flesh. And Zeus continues... 
Moved with disdain, the table I o'erturned, and with the avenging flames the palace burned. The tyrant in affright for shelter gains the neighboring fields and scours along the plains. Howling he fled, and fain he would have spoke, but human voice his brutal tongue forsook. About his lips the gathered foam he churns, and breathing slaughters still with rage he burns, but on the bleeding flock his fury turns. Turns. His mantle, now his hide with rugged hairs, cleaves to his back, a famished face he bears. His arms descend, his shoulders slink away to multiply his legs for chase of prey. He grows a wolf, his hoariness remains, and the same rage in other members reigns. His eyes still sparkle in a narrower space. His jaws retain the grin and violence of his face." And uh, according to some, if I remember correctly, this is this is kind of the birth of the werewolf. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. This is uh, this is a one of, if not the earliest accounts you'll find of uh, of of someone turning into a lupine form. I don't remember if we discussed this story in the episode we did about the first monster, about mm-hmm. like the where what was the origin of uh, beliefs in beings embodying both human and animal forms mixed together. We might have mentioned this. But of course, apart from this myth, which uh, I don't think this is a historical record in no. any case of a werewolf transformation, uh, the, 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 despite the story of King Lycaon and all this, the, the mountain Lycaon was in, you know, without a doubt, a holy site in some versions of Greek religion, since it was sort of the home birthplace of Zeus. And it was also a place where blood sacrifices and burnt offerings to Zeus were brought. And it's long been known that animals were sacrificed and burned to Zeus here. Uh, but recently there's been some, there, there've been some chilling discoveries. Archaeologists at the sanctuary of Zeus have been excavating a giant ancient mound of ash about a hundred feet or about 30 meters wide that was the site of these animal sacrifices, mostly sheep and goats, beginning around the 16th century BCE, so going way back. And in 2016, it was announced that they had found human remains here. They they found the skeleton of an adolescent male uh, from what appears to be, I think it's not positive, but it really looks like this was a human sacrifice from around the 11th century BCE. Um, and of course, this wouldn't be the only case where we know of human sacrifice likely taking place uh, up on a mountain. Like I, I think about the uh, you know going to the to South America, the children of Uyayko or Uyayako, right? And in the late '90s, at some point, they discovered three uh, Inca child mummies there that were up on the summit of the mountain. It's not known for sure what that is, but it appears to be a form of human sacrifice that was taking showing the religious significance of the mountain there too. Interesting. So uh, I think this is a great example to start with here. Uh, it embodies a number of different things here. Pilgrimage, um, uh, just the, the view, mentioning just how much you can see from up there. And the idea, too, that this puts you – puts a place to put you in, in closer contact with the divine, with the gods. But now I'd like to talk just a little bit about the importance of geography and and naturally occurring forms as metaphors. Yeah. Uh, we've talked about this a good bit on the show before, but, you know, you can find root, branch, tree, river, uh, iconography all over the place. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think back to our episode on the trident as well, which according to some theories was originally based on a fig leaf. So, you know, it, ancient people turned to natural forms as a way of thinking about the world and kind of externalizing thought. 
uh, and uh, and you see that in 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 pretty much in every human tradition. Uh, so it should come as no surprise that mountains speak to us as well. After all, a sacred mountain is just one part of an overall sacred geography. And I think that's important to note. Like ancient peoples, they wouldn't have thought like, oh yeah, this is just land over here and that's a lake, that's a river, and oh, this mountain, uh, that place is holy, that's where the gods live. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, it, the, the oceans, the mountains, the earth itself, the rivers, all of it comes into play for uh, when you're considering a sacred view of the world or of the universe. Yeah, the, you know, I kind of think though that... Um we might be kind of unusual as far as like people in history go, given that most of, you know, most of us and the people listening to the show, probably most of their exposure to religion is like to monotheisms mm-hmm. like Christianity, Judaism and Islam, which I would say as far as religions go, have unusually low investments in geography and and the land. Because if you go to ancient pagan religions or indigenous religions of uh, of, of Europe and Africa and Asia and, uh, and, and the Americas, you find uh, all kinds of like you know, stories about how the land itself was created and like right. uh, like a very common story is that the land and the features of the land were features of monsters that were slain by or the features of a body of a god that died long ago. Yeah. Or they have particular connections to holy sites that are geographically unique and significant for being unique. I mean, I I guess uh, Christianity, Islam, and Judaism have geographical locations that are holy, but that's mainly for like what is believed to be their historical role. Right. Events that took place there uh, structures that either were there or, or are still there yeah. in some form or another. And that's certainly a part of it, as we'll discuss. But uh, there are various other ways to, to look at at sacred uh, mountains and sacred geography and why those places are considered sacred. So just the, I, I think one important thing to just keep in mind is something I, that most of us can relate to, and that is that just the idea of a mountain or an impressive photo of one will likely summon feelings of grandeur or intimidation, adventure, peace, effort, seclusion, wonder, uh, or indeed connection to the heavens. Um, I mean, this is why you see, uh, you know, posters and, and images and paintings of mountains. I mean, they are, they're beautiful to behold. And we travel to the mountains and then we stand uh, either atop the mountain or certainly at a nice uh, vista and we, we take it all in. And it, it, it summons feelings. It summons emotions. It takes us outside of ourselves. E.O. Wilson talks about this a little bit yeah. in, uh, when he's discussing the biophilia hypothesis. And I think this is in the context of him generally talking about evolutionary explanations for our aesthetic preferences like why is it so often that uh, the pictures we find beautiful include vistas from a high point of view mm-hmm. you know being able to look down over a landscape and he offers some possible evolutionary explanations for that you know maybe th- this is like a, a more defendable point where you can see things coming towards you but yeah, it's hard to deny that when I see a mountain, I, I don't know if everybody feels this way as much as I do. When I see a mountain, I want to go up it. I've never done mountain climbing. I've done hiking and stuff. But I do want to go up to the top of the highest point and look down. Well, see, I think you and I are different in this regard. Uh, you've talked before on, on uh, the show about how you have no problem like walking up to the edge of a cliff. Right. I'm a, a little more reluctant to do that. But – Still, if I see like a crazy, uh, you know, cliff or 
peak or or images of people mountain climbing, I do put myself, imagine myself up there, and and often terrify myself with the with the prospect of mm-hmm. it. Uh, so I, I feel like that kind of like mental transportation is inevitable. But um, a, a couple of other things about just how we think about mountains: a, a common trope in various uh, mythologies, and we'll touch on some specific examples here in a bit, are that the mountain, or at least the mountain peak, on some level connects Earth to the sky. Hmm. So it might be like a sky pillar situation where the mountain is holding up the cosmos, holding up the heavens, holding up the sky, or it is in some way an umbilical or a ladder, and uh, or, or that the mountain itself serves as a, you know an, an axis mundi, the central tent pole of a sacred cosmos, a, a stairway to heaven, <laughs> if you will. <laughs> well, that's really interesting because especially it pairs with older ways of thinking about the sky. You know, it's not all that uncommon for ancient peoples to have conceived of the sky as a place with solid ground that you could walk around in, you mm-hmm. know, like a firmament. There's a dome over the earth. And uh, and so you might wonder, well, what does something hold up the dome? If there's solid ground up there that the gods can walk around in, there must be something holding it up. And so you can imagine, well, maybe a mountain holds it up. That's the obvious answer, in fact. Yeah, so, so you can see where this, this complex weave emerges of an attempt to understand what is what you're physical what you're actually observing what is the objective reality and then also these mythic ideas of like what does about about structure and uh and uh, and center and uh, the importance of place and identity there's also from a practical sense the fact that to stand atop a great height is to gain a crucial vantage point yeah and in some cases that could be purely strategic right well, Just, this is the eo wilson thing i yeah. mentioned yeah you can see the movements of, of herd animals. You can see the movements of uh, enemy troops, etc. But I also wonder if it could be something a little more existential. I wonder if, if such heights could be uh, considered possibly uh, capable of invoking something like the overview effect, mm-hmm. that proposed uh, state of mind or you know, a state of uh, euphoric interconnectedness that ensues when one sees the planet Earth from outer space. It's not quite the same, certainly, but I, I'm wondering if perhaps that effect scales down to some extent. Yeah, I can absolutely see that. So some astronauts report, they look out the window of the International Space Station or of their you know, the, their vehicle and they see the Earth from space and suddenly it just comes into sharp focus that – that our, you know, petty squabbles are exactly that. They're petty, you know, th- mm-hmm. that they vanish in the face of the fact that we're all trapped on this ball together and and it makes human concerns look small and makes people feel a strong sense of sort of co- the common interest of all humanity and the connectedness of all of our concerns because the fate of the earth is the fate of all of us. And yeah, I, I can absolutely see that happening. I mean, so imagine you normally you live in a small village or a city where you are, you know, you, you've got your day-to-day concerns. You're angry with your neighbor. Mm-hmm. Or you've got your you know politics that you're doing if you're like a priest or something. And then you go up on a mountain and then you look down at the place where you come from, the village or the city or the farms, and suddenly everything looks tiny. This basic shift in visual and optical perspective could very well trigger a kind of the same kind of mental shift that people experience when they go into space. Yeah, Absolutely. I was uh, I was doing a little reading about about some of these ideas, and I ran across uh, an excellent little paper uh, by Edwin Birnbaum uh, titled "In Sacred Mountains: Themes and Teachings," hmm. and this is from Mountain Research and Development twenty six. And uh, the author does a great job of just just laying out some basics. Uh, for instance, lays out three basic ways that mountains are considered sacred. 
uh, and, and we can, as I lay these out, you can certainly think to examples we've discussed already, mm-hmm. and I think these will also be useful in considering uh, examples we discuss in the rest of the podcast. So, uh, Birnbaum says, first, specific peaks are singled out as places of sanctity. Uh, they are supported by myths and practices such as pilgrimages, meditation, and even sacrifice. Number two, they may contain sacred sites or objects like temples or shrines or even something more natural like a spring. Mm-hmm. And then number three, the natural setting itself awakens a sense of wonder and awe. Right. All three of these tend to work together, uh, Birnbaum says, on an individual's experience with the sacredness of a mountain. Furthermore, Birnbaum defined 10 themes frequently seen in sacred mountains. So they are roughly height, center, power, uh, God, uh, God, either the mountain is a god itself or it is the home of gods. The mountain is a place of worship. The mountain is a paradise or a garden. Um, It's a place where the ancestors of the dead may reside, a source of cultural identity, a source of healing, uh, or or just a source of water, Mm -hmm. which makes sense because, I mean, uh, it goes downhill. Exactly. Uh, And also as a place of renewal. Uh, So these are, again, 10 broad themes uh, that Birnbaum identifies in the uh, identity and characterization of sacred mountains. All right. Well, we can look for these in examples of mountains that we talk about. So maybe I'll offer up one example of a mountain to think about. And then maybe we should, after that, take a break and then look at some others. Okay. Okay. But this first one is one I mentioned in the uh, episode where we talked about pressure because I think it's a commonly cited example of a very important holy mountain that's uh, holy in multiple religions, not just one. Uh, and this would be the peak. Uh, it was, it's a peak in the Himalayas known as Mount Kailash or Mount Kailasa. Uh, and so this is a holy mountain in multiple religions. In Hinduism, this mountain is believed to be the abode of Lord Shiva, the destroyer of evil, and of his wife Parvati, who together sit in meditation at the summit of the mountain. And so the site of Mount Kailash is a destination of pilgrimage for many Hindus who climb uh, 15,000 feet or about 4.6 kilometers up this ascent path to the base of the mountain, but do not climb its summit. In fact, climbing the sacred summit is forbidden. And though while we can't know for sure, it's often said that the summit has never been climbed by a human. Uh, Instead, it's believed virtuous for pilgrims to walk in a circle around the base of the mountain, but not go up to the summit. Uh, And this, of course, is not just a holy site for Hindus, as I was saying, but it's also holy for Buddhists, for Jains, and for people of the uh, indigenous religion of Tibet known as Bon. Yes, a very ancient uh, animist religion. Yeah. Now, if you look at what a picture of Mount Kailash looks like from below, I mean, (laughs) I would say, obviously, I already know this about it when I've seen pictures of it, but it's not hard to see how a person looking up at this peak would begin to think that something powerful and holy and forbidden resided there. It does not look welcoming to ascent. Like it it doesn't look easy to climb. And I think there's something powerful about that to to like see a place and think, I I mean, especially in today's day and age to think, uh, I wonder if people have ever been on that spot. Has a person ever stood there? And if the answer is even possibly no, there is something kind of sacred about that. Like we've, we've pretty much screwed everything else up, but that one peak is, uh, is pristine. You will not find a Slim Jim wrapper there. <laughs> yeah, and that does seem important, right? I mean, part of the issue is uh, 
anytime there's a mountain that people say has not been climbed, obviously people are going to want to climb it. So I've been reading, you know, there's political controversy over this. It's mm-hmm. like, uh, I think there was one point I read a, a team of uh, Spanish mountain climbers who announced that they were going to climb the mountain, but it's a, it's a holy site. You're not supposed to climb it. Uh, even though I think the team, they were, they were not uh, Hindus. Or, so they didn't share this belief about the uh, religious forbiddenness of the mountaintop, but the government authority prevented them from climbing the mountain, I think, just because they wanted to avoid this leading to, to unrest or just to, I guess, being seen as an insult to, to people who believe that the mountain should not be climbed. Uh, I mean, I do tend to wonder if people just started climbing a mountain like this all the time, would it kind of break the spell of this story? Would it make people, uh, would it make the mountain seem less holy? I don't know. That's something to consider. And after we come back from this next break, uh, we're going to take that consideration into specific examples, Uh, not only with actual mountains and some of the sacred ideas about them, but then we'll also be looking at some some mythological and even fictional mountains, which I guess are kind of inherently safe from from, uh, mountain climbers wandering where they're not supposed to be. All right, we're back. So we've been talking about holy mountains in religious beliefs and myths around the world. Have you got an, another example you wanted to talk about, Robert? Uh, yeah, here, here are a couple of good ones, I think. Uh, one, of course, is Mount Meru. Uh, this is a great example of a mythical holy mountain, uh, one that serves as a world axis in Hindu, Jain, Buddhist cosmology. For instance, in Tibetan mandalas, uh, uh, these really you know complex and important works of art that are uh, you know all about conveying visually conveying complex um, theological ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'll see Mount Meru sometimes situated as the center of things, surrounded by seven oceans, seven concentric mountain ranges, and beyond these ranges, another ocean and islands. It's it's all an unreal ge- geography, you know, and in that a very sacred and symbolic geography, a spatial representation of a rich and complex cosmology. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in a similar uh, frame of mind, and this is a one that's, that's completely fictional. It's not a part of anybody's mythology. But uh, if you're familiar with uh, Dante's Divine Comedy, uh, we, of course, have the three books, right? We, we begin with the Inferno. Uh, we eventually, in book three, uh, wind up in paradise. But to get there, uh, Dante and Virgil have to scale the Mount of Purgatorio, uh, the the, uh, the the earthly purgatory. Uh, so this is a mountain that is uh, uh, that extends from earth uh, to the threshold of heaven, and at the very top of the mountain, at the very peak, that's where the earthly paradise is located, the Eden of uh, the, of the Old Testament and Christian traditions. Oh, okay. So this does uh, – this makes more sense also if you know something about like medieval Catholic theology, right? right. Which, which had this belief in the idea of purgatory where it wasn't hell. You know, you weren't condemned there forever, but you were basically a good Christian, but you did some sins that were not atoned for. And so you have to go to purgatory before you can get to heaven. Right. And so you spend some time there in – you know, it's not hell, but it's not nice. It's not pleasant. Uh, and you're stuck there until you essentially serve out your sentence. You're purified of your sin and then you can be admitted into heaven. Right. It is a literary symbolic representation of penitent Christian life. Um uh, again, no, no one holds that the Mount of Purgatory is a real place. It is very much a uh, a part of the literature here. 
but it does serve as kind of a nice example of some of the same ideas of, of mythological holy mountains. Well, one thing I do like about the idea of uh, of holy mountains, including purgatory, actually, the purg- Mount of Purgatory, is that they do seem like an indication of older versions of religion that were more uh, – that could be situated on earth because there were lots of parts of earth that we didn't know about. Right. right. You know, so like Dante could say, well, yes, you can enter hell through a cave here and you go down and then you can go up the mountain of purgatory and that's over here and that would be OK because, you know, there was lots of the earth that he didn't know what was there. You, you could just assume it's somewhere undiscovered. Yeah. Now, there are, of course, plenty of actual mountains that are considered sacred, either by association with a mythical world mountain. You see that from time to time where there's a mythological mountain and then it, uh, a nearby mountain becomes associated with the same, same ideas through traditions. And then if we, if we, as we have explored in past episodes, there's also the added dimensions of various pyramids and ziggurats that uh, have been constructed as a sort of artificial mountain, allowing the people who built them to participate in mountaintop sacred rites and uh, observances, in some cases in regions where uh, such peaks are, uh, are, are not uh, readily available. Well, yeah, and just like in the case, say, like in Mount Kailash, where it is believed that Lord Shiva and Parvati are dwell on top of the mountain, the ziggurat, I think, is interpreted by many modern scholars to have been thought to be a home of the gods by the people who use mm-hmm. them. So, like, the, maybe the priests would go up there and do some kind of rite, but it was also believed that the god would come down and, like, sleep the night on the top of the ziggurat or might, might even live there for some period. Absolutely. Uh, you know, and another quick thing I, I want to mention, in looking at, at, at various mountain myths, I noticed that, you know, primordial beings often form mountains out of the soil, or as we mentioned earlier, they, they their bodies or the bodies of uh, loved ones become the mountains. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, it's it's easy to sort of take the formation of mountains for granted with even just sort of a, you know, um, a, a casual... Uh, understanding of, say, plectectonics uh, and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, you know, just a, a surface level understanding of geology. But imagine trying to understand what a mountain was if you really had no idea about any of these things. I mean, unless you were witness to volcanic eruption, um, are, you know, are there, there, there are no mountain formation processes that are going to be readily observable. Mm-hmm. And so, it makes as much sense of anything to turn to some of these uh, these these, these purely uh, mythological and cosmic explanations for why they are there. Well, you can get even weirder with it. I mean, one of my favorite examples is the coolest place I've ever been, the Mount Stephen trilobite beds up in uh, Brit- Mount Stephen, British Columbia, mm-hmm. which is uh, you know, part of the Burgess Shale formation that uh, I went to a couple of years ago. And so you try to imagine that not having a any kind of scientific understanding. You go up a mountain and then up near the top, there's just like a cliff where pieces of, of rock are shearing off and they've got the imprints of strange undersea monsters on them. And it's like you'd have no idea of figuring out how – so this once was sedimentary rock at the bottom of an ocean and it has been pushed up and made into a mountain over hundreds of millions of years. Yeah, even knowing the geologic, uh, geological processes in, in, in place here, it's still amazing to behold and well beyond the scope of a human lifetime and and, uh, and really sort of natural human perception. Absolutely. So uh, just, I'm going to run through some more examples here of holy mountains that kind of give a nice overview of some of these different uh, 
different ideas. Uh, I was reading about the uh, the Dinhe Bane, the Navajo creation myth, um, complete with the creation and recreation of the sacred mountains across five worlds. So that uh, involves the idea that four other worlds preceded the one that we live in now. And this is an idea that pops up in various Mesoamerican and Native American religions. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the Aztecs, uh, Coatepec served as the mythical sacred mountain, the serpent mountain, uh, in their uh, mythical homeland of Aztlan. And according to uh, Nicoleta uh, Mastri on uh, ThoughtCo, the great temple of Tenochtitlan is thought to be a replica of this holy mountain. So oh, okay. another example of recreating the holy mountain, an artificial holy mountain created uh, you know, in the, the likeness of a mythological form. Hmm. In Norse mythology, Himinbjörg is the mountain where the Bifrost connects Asgard and Midgard. Uh, and this is home of the god uh, Himdal. And then there's also perhaps the, the less famous Nierborg. Uh, and this is the hiding place of the mead of poetry. Oh, yeah. Uh, Mount Fuji is important in Japanese culture. It uh, represents, according to Birnbaum, quote, quest for beauty and simplicity that lies at the heart of Japanese culture. And I think, yeah, Mount Fuji is is one of these examples that, like, it's it's cultural. It's it's part of it's cultural pride. Like, mm-hmm. it is a part of the natural geography that people can take pride in and find a sense of identity in. Yeah, one thing I think every time I see an image of Mount Fuji is it just looks very visually perfect. It's very like gracefully sloped and symmetrical, yeah. like kind of like it is a work of art. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, if you uh, go to uh, Tanzania, you'll find Mount Kilimanjaro and uh, some of the the, the, the Chaga people of, uh, of that region, their myths and beliefs about uh, the dormant volcano hold that it contains gateways to the spirit world. Hmm. In Chinese mythology, though there are a few different uh, holy mountains of note, one is Mount uh, Bujo or Bujo Shan, and it's associated with the uh, the Pamir Mountains in Central Asia, and it's one of the sky pillars holding up the heavens. And again, this is a mountain trope found in various cultures. Uh, there's a, a myth in which it was damaged by the water god uh, Gong Gong in his uh, ancient battle for supremacy against the Yellow Emperor. And then after the Yellow Emperor's victory, uh, the goddess Nuwa uh, had to repair the damage. But uh, in Chinese myth, uh, uh, the the, the uh, Kunlun Mountain is perhaps the most important. Uh, as described in the excellent Handbook of Chinese Mythology by Yang An and Turner, uh, it is not only a key pillar of the sky, uh, but also an abode of gods and immortals. Hmm. And there are really a lot of descriptions of it and its various fountains, magical trees, magical animals. It's really an entire sacred ecology uh, unto itself. And if there's a particular magical plant, magical item, or sacred water that you wish to obtain, uh, then uh, Kunlun is the place you'll find it. It's got it all. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's everything. It includes uh, it, it holds, for instance, the sweet spring, an emerald lake, the pearl tree, the jade tree, the tree of immortality, Cinnabar River, which uh, prevents death if you drink it, uh, the weak river where nothing floats. Um, so it has, it has all the magical items and just scaling it and, uh, and scaling to the appropriate, uh, terrace on the mountain, according to some uh, traditions, uh, means that you can take on divine powers yourself over natural forces, uh, perhaps acquire immortality or even, uh, take on spirit status yourself. Again, provided you know where to climb and you can survive the dangers. 
various important mythic events are, are sometimes set on the mountain, including uh, the goddess Nuwa's marriage to her brother and the subsequent population of the world. So again, that's just uh, this is just a few examples. There's so many other sacred mountains um, that that we didn't we either didn't have time to include or just didn't have time to research. But uh, again, if we left one out that you're particularly fond of or you visited yourself, uh, certainly write into us. Well, and these I would point out are just the sacred mountains that have accumulated like myths with staying power over the years because I would say there are a number of now pretty well-observed phenomena that would under normal circumstances be creating new sacred mountain myths all the time. And maybe we should explore that when we come back from a break. All right, we're back. We've uh, discussed all these mythological ideas about uh, about mountains and sacred mountains, but uh, well, let's get into some more recent accounts that shed light on uh, some of the things that are happening uh, when humans go to great heights. All right, so I want to talk about an English mountaineer named Frank Smythe, who was famous and accomplished as a climber in his day. And in 1933, he attempted to reach the summit of Mount Everest. And if he had been successful, he would have been the first person in history to do it. But he failed. He he fell short by only about 300 meters or 1,000 feet, which I'm sure is very frustrating when, you know, you're that close and you can see it and you can't make it up. But, uh, of course, once you hit those kind of altitudes, you're facing a lot of problems. And number one, he would have been climbing without uh, oxygen assistance. Yeah. This is something that climbers today obviously benefit from. Um, But Smythe described in a firsthand account uh, after this experience a strange set of things that he saw and and felt while he was alone on this climb. So I I just wanted to read a few sections from a a piece that Smythe wrote called Mirages at 28,000 Feet. Smythe wrote, quote, During my solitary climb, two curious phenomena were experienced. It is with great diffidence that I describe them, and then only at Rutledge's, uh, the the expedition leader's, request. I prefer to draw no inferences from them and merely to describe them. The first was one that is by no means unique and has been experienced in the past by solitary wanderers, not, not only in mountains but on desert wastes and in polar regions." All the time that I was climbing alone, I had a strong feeling that I was accompanied by a second person. Mm. This feeling was so strong that it completely eliminated all loneliness I might otherwise have felt. It even seemed that I was tied to my companion by a rope and that if I slipped, he would hold me. I remember constantly glancing back over my shoulder and once, when after reaching my highest point, I stopped to try and eat some mint cake, I carefully divided it and turned around with one half in my hand. It was almost a shock to find no one to whom to give it. It seemed to me that this presence was a strong, helpful, and friendly one, and it was not until Camp 6 was sighted that the link connecting me, as it seemed at the time, to the beyond was snapped, and although Shipton and the camp were but a few yards away, I suddenly felt alone. The second phenomenon may or may not have been an optical illusion. Personally, I am convinced that it was not. 
I was still some 200 feet above Camp 6 and a considerable distance horizontally from it when, chancing to glance in the direction of the North Ridge, I saw two curious-looking objects floating in the sky. They strongly resembled kite balloons in shape, but one possessed what appeared to be squat, underdeveloped wings, and the other a protuberance suggestive of a beak. They hovered motionless, but seemed slowly to pulsate, a pulsation incidentally much slower than my own heartbeats, which is of interest supposing that it was an optical illusion. The two objects were very dark in color and were silhouetted sharply against the sky or possibly a background of clouds. So interested was I that I stopped to observe them. My brain appeared to be working normally, and I deliberately put myself through a series of tests. First of all, I glanced away. The objects did not follow my vision, but they were still there when I looked back again. Then I looked away again, and this time identified by name a number of peaks, valleys, and glaciers by way of a mental test. But when I looked back again, the objects still confronted me. At this, I gave them up as a bad job. But just as I was starting to move again, a mist suddenly drifted across. Gradually, they disappeared behind it. And when a minute or two later, it had drifted clear, exposing the whole of the North Ridge once more, they had vanished as mysteriously as they came. Hmm. Strange experiences when climbing Everest alone. Now, this third man syndrome in particular is not at all unique to Smythe, as he points out. In fact, reports like this come from many people in lonely struggles where survival seems to be at risk. Uh, There were reports from the Ernest Shackleton expedition through Antarctica in 1916 that they often believe there to be another companion among them. Yes. Uh, There was one piece in the British Medical Journal in 2008 where a doctor and so this is much more recent where a doctor and mountain climber named Jeremy Windsor described his own firsthand experiences of this kind when he was climbing Mount Everest he wrote quote I first met Jimmy on the balcony, a cold, windswept snow shelf high up on the southeast ridge of Mount Everest. At an altitude of more than 8,200 meters, our introduction had been brief, with little more than a muffled hello and a few words of encouragement passing between us. Over my right shoulder, obscured by the bulky oxygen mask and the rim of down that smothered my face, I was sure I could see Jimmy moving lightly in the darkness, but despite him remaining close Close by me for the rest of the day, I didn't see him again. At the time, it hadn't worried me. Instead, I was warmed by the thought of human company and too breathless to question what seemed so real. If the truth be told, my thoughts were really nothing more than brief flickers of images or sounds that vanished with the onset of each new breath. So once again, a mysterious other accompanying uh, someone as they scale great heights. Yeah. And so in the middle of this, I was actually reading an NPR article about this phenomenon that uh, reminded me of a haunting passage in the fifth section of T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland. That's the section entitled What the Thunder Said, which mm-hmm. is uh, an idea taken from the Upanishads. Uh, But, of course, that already implies the idea of, like, hearing voices coming from something other than people, you know, hearing voices in the thunder. Uh, But it mentions something like this other companion or what's known as third man syndrome or third man factor. Uh, And I went back and reread this section of the poem, and it was really interesting given what we're discussing here. It's talking about a journey through the mountains. I'm not sure exactly who's making this journey in the context of the poem. It may be kind of disembodied. It might be implied that this journey journey is part of the search for the Holy Grail, which is a part of that poem, but uh, but I could be wrong about that. And it's got this
this idea of the experience of an unseen third companion. So Eliot writes, Here is no water but only rock, rock and no water and the sandy road, the road winding above among the mountains, which are mountains of rock without water. If there were water, we should stop and drink. Amongst the rock, one cannot stop or think. Sweat is dry and feet are in the sand. If there were only water amongst the rock, dead mountain mouth of carious teeth that cannot spit. Here one can neither stand nor lie nor sit. There is not even silence in the mountains but dry, sterile thunder without rain. There is not even solitude in the mountains, but red, sullen faces sneer and snarl from doors of mud-cracked houses. And then a little bit further down, Eliot says, Who is the third who walks always beside you? When I count, there are only you and I together. But when I look ahead up the white road, there is always another one walking beside you, gliding wrapped in a brown mantle, hooded. I do not know whether a man or woman, but who is that on the other side of you? Now, of course, uh, Eliot is writing before uh, – I think this is in the early 1920s. So mm-hmm. Eliot's writing before Smythe's account is published or any of that. So th- this is a, a phenomenon that had already been observed, but it seems to be especially common among mountain climbers. And it's not the only strange perceptual anomaly that's often reported by mountain climbers. Think also of Smythe's second phenomenon where he witnesses what you were reading about, Robert, these strange floating balloon creatures that uh, they were just up there over the peak. And so it's extremely common for mountain climbers to report strange experiences, perceptions, mystical encounters in the pursuit of high mountain peaks. And obviously, given these modern accounts, it's not hard at all to to imagine that they may have, if something similar was going on in the ancient world, they may have played some role in the formation of religious beliefs about mountains. Absolutely. I think it's, it's, uh, it's, it's very fascinating to think about. Now, of course, we don't want to fall into the trap of, of saying that uh, you know, all supernatural ideas about uh, the mountains can be attributed to uh, whatever is going on with third man syndrome. Right. But uh, you can certainly imagine how, in some cases, it might help to produce uh, ideas and myths concerning uh, entities and gods in the mountains mm-hmm. or strengthen uh, those examples, uh, strengthen those traditions that are already set in place? Well, yeah, looking back to uh, Birnbaum's themes that are often seen with sacred mountains, of course, there's the idea that that mountains are often gods or the home of gods or the body of gods. It might be a place to go worship the gods. But also, uh, like a couple of things he mentions are the idea of like ancestors or the dead or might have something to do with mountains. And you can clearly see how uh, a, a hallucinated third person or second person or companion on a journey could be interpreted as an ancestor. Often when people uh, when people hallucinate presences helping them, they are interpreted to be ancestors. And also the idea of mountains being a place of pilgrimage. You know, right. if you're making this journey, someone could be there with you to make the pilgrimage. All right. On that note, we're going to close out this episode, but we are going to pick right back up in the next episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind. We're going to take everything we've discussed here about uh, sacred mountain traditions and beliefs, uh, as well as third man syndrome. And we're going to go a little deeper into the uh, uh, into, into what seems to be going on neurologically, psychologically. Uh, and yes, we'll even make just a little bit of room for the Yeti. In the meantime, if you want to check out more episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's the mothership. That's where you'll find 
all the shows. You'll find uh, links out to social media. Uh, you will also find a little tab for our store. And hey, if you want to support us, the best thing you can do is make sure you rate and review Stuff to Blow Your Mind wherever you have the power to do so. Make sure you've subscribed and make sure that you've subscribed to Invention as well. That's the other podcast that Joe and I put out every week. Each episode is a different uh, look at inventions, the techno history of the human species. Big thank you, as always, to our excellent audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback about this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.